Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a dork living in Portland, Oregon, who spent too many years listening to podcasts and not doing anything creative. This is my attempt to rectify that, to create and contribute something where I talk to people about their cultural obsessions and try to give some recommendations of my own. Welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. Rough flow for the show, and rough flow is uh, putting it mildly. But I, was, uh, um, I figure start by the usual introduction. Introduction. Actually, I kind of at one point. What do you have for an introduction? Hi, everybody. You are listening to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I am your host, Jeremy. Joining us uh, tonight, and returning and new guests. Uh, see, to my right, I want to introduce our returning guests. Returning guests, if you could please introduce yourself. I'm Jacob. All right, Jacob, back. Uh, the ret- uh, other returning uh, co-host. I'm Garrett. I'm also to his right, All right. behind Jacob. And and uh, new guest for this evening, could you please introduce yourself to the viewing audience? I'm stuck in the middle, and my name is Rune. All right, and thank you very much. That's the intro. Okay. I'm kind of curious like, how you went from from uh, from cooking school to uh, <laughs> getting uh, covering like right wing assholes and hooking up with uh, Greenwald's group. <laughs> is that and, what your uh, degree says? Cooking school. Uh, my highest degree is a culinary school degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly because I uh, managed to drop out of both a bachelor's and a master's program in college because I, I took a job in journalism in New York in the early nineties. And uh, then I went to, to cooking school in the late nineties. Gotcha. And so it's it's more of an uh, interregnum between uh, two epochs of journalism. Uh, for lack of better transition, uh, thank <laughs> thank you for joining us, Arun. Uh, from the um, I was going to say the more wintry climbs on the East Coast right about now, isn't it? Yep, yep. It's been uh, cold and snowy, but uh, I like that. So it's, can you give can you give us and the uh, the viewing audience just like a a, a, a little bit of your background? Uh, I am a journalist. Uh, I got my start in the early '90s. I worked at this as an editor at this uh, left wing news weekly called the Guardian News Weekly. Uh, has nothing to do with the uh, the um, what in those days we would just call the Manchester Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the Guardian was founded by three journalists who had served on uh, General Eisenhower's staff. They were part of the denazification effort in uh, Germany. That's how they meant met their job was basically to go from town to town in germany fire the staff of the newspapers under the assumption that they were nazis and then find anyone they could to replace them and these three guys would try and find like whatever left-wingers they could find socialists communists anarchists uh to be the new newspaper staff they then went back uh, about a year and a half later to check on the progress and in most of the places they went to the nazis were back in charge of the newspapers and this was also a time of rising uh, anti-communist hysteria in the United States so they decided they wanted to start a publication Mm -hmm. um, that would be sympathetic to but independent of the communist party and it would also be uh, a guard against fascism so it was explicitly founded as an anti-fascist publication which is interesting enough uh, in this this day and age in 1948 um, it was the largest left-wing publication in the 1950s uh, much bigger than the the nation or uh, other publications um, 
the way I like to explain significance, the reason people know about the Rosenbergs is because of the Guardian. Uh, they hmm. had been completely abandoned by the Communist Party. There was no um, campaign to save them. Um, they were completely being ignored, and it was the Guardian who took it up as you know as a campaign. Um, and so they're the ones who led the uh, opposition to their execution, and their circulation peaked um, uh, right about the time of their education. Uh, execution at 90,000. Uh, the Guardian also, my understanding, was the first English English language paper in the world to come out against the Israeli occupation of uh, the West Bank. Basically, they came out against it as soon as it happened. Being based in New York, um, Must they had them real popular. No, no problem at all, right? Uh, they lost something like forty percent of their subscribers, oh. um, like twenty thousand subscribers. Very courageous uh, thing for them to do. And then, like the rest of the left, they uh, went crazy in the late 60s um, mm -hmm. became uh, Maoists and uh, entered all these like kind of weird factional they went from a circulation of over a hundred thousand to like 15,000 and tried to like start an, a, a new communist party um, all sorts of hilarious stories from that period uh, when I came on there were people who had been working there since uh, the late 60s and uh, one of the stories was some Anarchist was a real bad word in in the office, and uh, some anarchist supporters of the Weather Underground had climbed up uh, the fire escape, lined the windows, and had opened the windows and started pissing in the office like. This was all planned um, to get people away from the windows who were trying to like beat them back with like bats and lead pipes and took over and occupied the office. And someone had uh, uh, the sense to grab uh, the subscription files on the way out the door. But for about a year, there were two uh, dueling guardians. There was a regulate the regular guardian and the liberated uh, i don't know if folks are familiar with the revolutionary communist party the um it's i've heard it mentioned uh did you ever and i still need to read the i think uh zero books put out at least one book on them and did you ever read revolution in the air by i think max, max Elbaum. um yep. I've, I've read parts of it i it's the best account of uh, all this craziness in the 70s um and you'll hear people who went through all the craziness uh say that mm -hmm. um rcp comes out out of uh, the splits uh, within SDS, you know, SDS, you know, Students for a Democratic Society, mm -hmm. the kind of the storied uh, st uh, student activist organization. The movement, yeah. Yeah, it gets taken over by Maoists, it then splits into RIM 1, RIM 2, Revolutionary Youth Movement 1 and 2. And uh, two becomes the nucleus for a revolutionary communist party, which Bob Avakian will, uh, he's the cult leader. Um, that, and, in that, yeah, that's where he enters the scene. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the RCP is a bona fide cult of personality. Um, they also tried to take over uh, the Guardian offices. Uh, and where I worked, it was the same exact offices. And we were on like the 14th floor. And what 
happened was they pack like 20 of them pack into this elevator mm -hmm. meant to hold about half that many. Oh, boy. They come up to the 14th floor and that it opens up to the business office and it opens up and they're so packed in there. No one can come, come out. <laughs> and people in the business office are just kind of like looking at them as the doors open for a few seconds. And then the door closes. And because they had packed so many people in there, it was so overweight. It just starts to go down and plummets and goes right into the basement, and they have to be rescued by the fire department. This is the left. Pretty great. Pretty great. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Well, that was very popular back then, wasn't it? I mean, they were mm -hmm. always trying to like see how many people they could fit into a phone booth. Exactly. How many people they could fit into a VW Bug. Like, this was... Well, you sit on top of a flagpole for as long as you can, <laughs> swallow a live goldfish. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It was just fun. It was well, just good kid fun. Dance the Lindy until you die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, was say, we're, I think we're, 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 mi we're mixing uh, early, early seasons of Jackass with the flappers here. So you were working there right at pre-Giuliani era, right? I I started briefly before him. I mean, oh, are we going to get into some old stories, some old-timey stories? You know what? New York was... Am I allowed to cuss? Certainly. We, uh, we require it. New York was fucking awesome before uh, Giuliani. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it had its problems. But this is, I, I live in the uh, Lower East Side. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, this is kind of the real storied radical neighborhood. It's where Emma Goldman uh, uh, used to live. Uh, Leon Trotsky, I think, uh, spent some time there. Um, and it when when I moved there in the early 90s, it was still this uh, hotbed of uh, uh, radicalism there. And the thing... Um, about it there was a much different policy towards drugs in those days i mean it w it wasn't you know the neighborhood could be pretty scary mm -hmm. um there w there was it was an open air heroin market uh, essentially uh, they, people, that, that always helps yeah yeah people you'd see them shooting up right uh, on on curbs passed out um, there were uh, blocks that uh, were no go uh, the only reason uh, as a friend of mine who's a became a junkie put it the only reason uh, you go down this uh, block 7th street uh, between avenues B and C is if you want to uh, score heroin or you want to get mugged Mm, right. Yeah. And my only knowledge of, of that era is either through movies or the very first season of the real world. Could you get the phone? <laughs> right. Um, so, but, and this is, I, I like to make this distinction between like public culture and, and private culture. Mm -hmm. I was just in uh, uh, Paris uh, this past summer doing some research uh, for my food book. And I didn't realize like, you know, open air drinking is allowed. Mm -hmm. It's completely allowed. Um, like in Mobile or New Orleans. Yeah. And so uh, my girlfriend and I were staying near this one, Quay, uh, 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 I think it's pronounced. I don't know. My, my friend's pronunciation is I terrible. Speak, I only know Spanish, not French. In any case, every night it would just be lined with small groups of people with uh, bottles of wine and, and booze and they would just hang out and have a good time and that's what New York East Village used to be like um, you could just hang out on the street drink booze smoke pot and the cops wouldn't bother you I remember once walking down the street passing a joint uh, uh, with some friends and this cop car slows down a cop sticks his head out the window and just goes don't pass that joint don't pass that that joint and they speed up and go away 
So that it, sounds be, pretty great. Yeah, yeah a, a much a much much different era. Right, and so under Giuliani, you know, the whole thing was, it was of course uh, back then there was actually a dog whistle, right, instead of uh, the uh, racist bullhorn uh, that mm. we have now, and so Giuliani is like, you know, quality of life. We're going to go after the squeegee men, you know, the pot smokers uh the bicyclists right this is the biggest problem new york city has when yeah, uh, the vermin yeah, yeah yeah when meanwhile there's you know like over two thousand people dying a, a year in the crack wars uh yeah. um in uh, the uh, latino and african-american neighborhoods um so arrests of uh, marijuana possession increased something like a thousand percent uh within a couple of years uh, uh under giuliani um, and so what it does is at the same time, the gentrification, th that really started to happen under his predecessor, Dinkins. That's, right. Um, but uh, so the, that kind of that public culture, you know, I mean, we would just sit on the street. People would play music. No one would, would bother you. Um, uh, there was this uh, one of the few bars near me. They would have these uh, dance parties in the bar every Friday night on First and First. And they would spill into the street. Like people by, just dancing in the street? Like, yeah, there'd be like 100 to 200 people at like 3 in the morning dancing in the street, um, right in the intersection. Far out. Yeah, and so this, and this, um, you know, I've, I've been visiting Portland, uh, you know, occasionally for the last decade. And so it's almost like time-lapse photography. And I think this is what gentrification does right you know it, it kind of takes this public life and, and privatizes it it's a form of enclosure yeah right so um awesome so, yeah. well, this, no. this is around the time when the uh bonfire of the vanities happened right i think that's like a decade earlier okay. you know before my time but you know what you know maybe you're you're right because it does uh i think parody uh um sharpton as as one of the characters right so it's a few years before me um felt like a different you know when you're young uh three or four years feels like a different era how'd you how, how did you wind up going from like doing journal to cooking uh, so when I joined the Guardian, it was on its last legs. Here's a quick story. Um, and I didn't know that when they hired me, but right after they hired me, there'd been this guy, he had, he had died before I, I got there, um, who he had worked at the Guardian since its founding. He had never drawn a paycheck. Um, his name was Fred Hart. Uh, he paid the rent of the Guardian every month. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason his story is important because it shows, you know, as much as you want to say about the Communist Party, I think the left used to be a lot more intelligent. Uh, the Communist Party used to encourage its members to go into business. Um, and, you know, it didn't have this kind of like puerile uh, um, and puritanical hatred of, of money. It, it understood that it was still a tool. So Fred Hart uh, started a grocery store and over time he built it into like, uh, I think, four grocery stores on Long Island. Mm. When he died, he left his entire estate to left wing organizations. And this is like 
I think, 91 or something. Hmm. And he left The Guardian um, $600,000. That'd probably be about $2 million. Holy shit. You know, and so we're, that kept us limping along for a couple of years. So the grocery stores were for profit? Yeah, they were okay. for, for profit, you know, but he, he, his, The Guardian never paid rent because he was paying their commercial rent. Not bad. For 40 years. And um, I mean, he left them with enough money, they should have been able to buy a building, but the, they, they squandered it. Um, in any case, uh, so after that, uh, you know, it's just I kind of got, uh, it was like to go down with a sinking ship is uh, like, uh, it's not an easy experience. Um, and so I kind of got burnt out on politics. I ended up, you know, I know also the 90s were a time where things really seemed pretty depoliticized. Yeah, that, yes. that's, I, th- I think I think that's one of the things of, we've talked about it on the earlier episodes too, but I, uh, I showed up on, ca- uh, I went to... Uh, I showed up in Ann Arbor on campus in 94, and, like, mid-90s politics was full in effect. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, there was a Zapatistas. I'd cut my teeth on... Sorry, Jeremy. Did, were, you, were you saying affect? Like, it was just a... When you say full in effect... Or were you saying full effect, like... In full effect, yes. Yeah, but how would you describe 90s politics? Bill Hicks. <laughs> you know, your political education came on the back of a peace pop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you had Raging Against the Machine records or something. Some of those that work forces are the same that bar crosses. Some of those that work forces draw the same that bar crosses. Killing in the name of. That was what being a leftist was. It was owning to at least to rage against the well, machine. Well, you know, it was like stuff like United Students Against Sweatshops. Um, I remember, I remember the sit-ins in Ann Arbor. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was pretty young during most of the '90s, so I, I you know, I was not politically aware. Uh, so yeah, I don't. Yeah, really know. my 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 initial political education came because somehow my conservative parents subscribed to, uh, to Newsweek, and I started reading it during the Gulf War, <laughs> and then eventually, cool. uh, and then eventually, like you know, slowly got more and more. And uh, a buddy of mine wound up uh, working for Senator Don Regal, and one of these is I got to tell the story of going to of election night in ninety two of going to the UAW uh, headquarters in Flint to watch the uh, like the um, like the uh, like the, the election night results and like the Clinton yeah, so raids. Like, you grew up with like unions and stuff. I just grew up with nothing. I, well, you know, I know like, I grew up afterwards. You know, r- there's a reason why well, Roger, dying unions. But well, yeah, yeah, Roger yeah. and me was set in my town for a reason. Yeah, no I'm, from Flint, I'm from Flint. Oh please! I mean, I'm 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 an immigrant. I uh, yeah. gr- grew up in an immigrant household that was completely depoliticized. Yeah, I, I go admit, along to get along, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, you know, just expected that I would, you know. Um, like I have to ex- explain. I school for me was was strange because when I found out other kids in my high school class were not going to college, that was a shock to me. Like. In, in in my family and, you know, all our relatives in the uh, kind of South Asian community in general, mm. like going to college was no big deal. And that was assumed. And in fact, the assumption was like, what advanced degree are you going to get? Of course, you're going to get some sort of an right. advanced degree, um, whether in engineering or math or doctor or science, um, et, et cetera. So, you know, that that was a type of, of culture I, I came up um in but i in any case i you know bobos in paradise right that was a the 
famous 90s book. David yes. Brooks, isn't it? Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. No, I think that's it's kind of how he, if not how he really first showed up, at least I don't think it was like, it was like, it was like real big splash that, you I know. think in a pop sense, that was what broke, what broke him. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that guy. I hate him so much. He, he, the only semi-intelligent idea he ever had. Um, was in that book? Yeah. Bourgeois bohemians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there, you know, there, there definitely is. But the much more intelligent uh, version of that would have been the Baffler, right? That's when the Baffler uh, yeah. uh, really came to prominence, mm-hmm. or might have even been founded. Um, I think, yeah, I think Thomas Franks founded like the early mid-90s and started going from there. And Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I I worked in advertising, um, doing copy editing and a little copywriting, and uh, paid well, but it was fucking boring. And I I, I would spend a, a lot of my day uh, getting stoned at work. Um, and I decided I wanted to do something more meaningful. Um, and I love cooking, so I went to culinary school and got trained in classical French cuisine and uh, uh, at the French Culinary Institute in New York City and cooked uh, for about a year or so. Um, even before I graduated, I, I realized it wasn't for me. Um, cooking is very mentally and physically challenging, and I do like that, but it wasn't the particular mental stimulation I was, I was looking for and it was kind of a thing I had to kind of get out of journalism to realize that it's my true love and what brought me back into it was Seattle WTO because that was uh, the first thing that gave me that, that was the first for me that was the first big thing and I just moved to Portland uh, maybe six months before where I was like this is some real shit and I'm excited and I want to go I didn't go. <laughs> I, I didn't I, have any money. No, I just yeah. remember hearing about it. I remember hearing about it back in the, just through sporadic channels back in Ann Arbor. But this, it's just, it's just funny that you mentioned that this is now like even our uh, our guest uh, Derek Varner, who was on our uh, the last episode that Jer- uh, Jacob and I. Uh, recorded with him. He, he called, he lives in Salt Lake and calls in. He talked about how his, his like political awakening was when he was 18 was, was motoring, uh, getting from Georgia up to Seattle to go there. Yeah. Well, and the timing on that is interesting too, because it's 99. So, you know, it sort of serves as a emblematic sea change of, you know, but even before that, you know, I certainly had political opinions back then, but there was never really a sense of urgency. There was no really a sense of, you know, yep. oh, no, oh, shit, we have to do something that, you know, I've read about happening in the 60s and to a lesser extent in some groups in the 70s and the sort of sensation that I'm feeling now. And particularly with the 90s, there were things like Waco, and there were certainly some very radicalized people in the, uh, the Oklahoma City uh, bombing being a good example right. of that. But it was it was all right-wing radicalism for that. Bit. Well, and I think it was pretty isolated. I think, for the most part, the population felt, you know, things are going okay. You know, I have a house, I have a job. You know, our president's kind of awful, but, you know. Yeah. And he's awful in a easy-to-tolerate way, so we can yeah. just, you know, go well, along. Well, like, GDP growth was really big, and everyone was still buying the sort of, the sort of the f- sort of bullshit idea that if the economy's doing well, you're doing well. And, and, the new and, economy. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, all that shit, you know. We were living in the end of history, so it was all good. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I got pretty radicalized, but it was a very academic radicalization. I read Chomsky and I read the disinfo books, everything you know is wrong and all these alternative right, conspiratorial yeah, yeah, ideas yeah, yeah. and I was like, wow, that's really messed up and then I would just go about my day. Yeah, yeah. Like these things were interesting, but they weren't 
Yes. Necessarily driving you to action. Well, it felt like just reading about something leftist was doing something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, just uh, to hit on that theme about how much uh, things can change within a few years, um, what's today the anniversary of? I need to buy my folks a card. Oh, uh, the French Commune? <laughs> uh, maybe, um, but the the <laughs> Iraq War. That too. Oh, that's right. I saw a funny tweet about that. 15 years ago. Um, it's almost old enough to enlist to fight in Iraq. Yeah. The invasion yeah. of Iraq. Yep, yep. With permission from its parents, it probably <laughs> could. Uh, yeah, you know, don't, don't want to be a bummer, but since, uh, you know, you, you were radicalized during the Gulf War, and uh, I helped to coordinate our coverage for that uh, well, I, lovely... Uh, I, I wasn't even... Oh, I wouldn't even say I was radicalized. I think I would just barely, <laughs> barely, like, came around to, like, just basic, like, you know, suburban white kid d- democratic politics. I, no, my radicalization was a good... Shit, I don't know. Like, it, it, was, it didn't really happen until, like, you know, between, I think, for, uh, initially, like, say, 2004 and then two, 2016 for good. So, <laughs> it was 2009 for me was when I started taking marks. That was the big thing where I started thinking about marks seriously. There's another point of comparison you can draw there between the first and second Iraq wars. The first 90s one being sort of, you know, it was it was light. It was easy. We got in. We got out. We lost a few people. Not that big a deal. I suppose the long grind that we're still in today. Well, in the way that the first Gulf War wove into the uh, uh, cable news was such a bizarre, you know, now we just take it for granted. But, but that was a whole, a whole new thing. It was like having a marketing a marketing team for your war. Well, yeah, I mean, it, and it, of course, keeps up, you know, if, if uh, Vietnam was the first television war and then uh, uh, the Iraq war was kind of the first, like, uh, cable, uh, maybe digital war, um, The certainly the second Iraq war was uh, the first uh, Internet war. Right. I, I remember uh, I didn't. I had a lot of uh, friends who went and uh, uh, to Iraq and uh, reported from there, and I was like seriously considering it. And then, you know, by um, really 2004, April 2004, that's when you had the the two uprisings: the Sunni uprising and the Shia uprising. I was like, okay, I don't think I'm going to be uh, going uh, to Iraq. Yeah, and the hotel bombing was around that time, as I recall. Uh, which or, one? Uh, well, there was one where they actually managed to hit a hotel that was occupied by journalists, mostly. Yep, I remember that. Uh, the U.S., you mean? Or the the guerrillas? The, the guerrillas. But there was, yeah. a, there was a point where basically it kind of felt like things were maybe improving, improving, and then there was just uh, that turn where it was we realized that this was going to keep happening and this was going to get really bad right yeah were your friends embedded or were they no 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 i, okay. I mean i'm you know i'm talking people like dar jamal jeremy scahill christian okay. perenni uh, well aaron uh, uh glance you know. i mean the reason i ask is i just didn't know if you know that embedding was that was one of the most kind of gross things about uh about that war and i didn't know if you could get in I mean, if without being an embedded journalist, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't if if you had the money, you could just uh, show up there, um, and uh, you know, it was uh, pretty dicey. Right, you had to get some guy to put you in a pickup. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
Okay, so let's so Battle of Seattle, uh, the, the WTO in '99 was kind of like what kind of like what re-energized you or got you? Yeah, yeah, it it it, it made me it gave me hope, and uh, that is a really I think extremely important aspect about uh, any politics. Uh, you know, I, I really find. Um, the whole like uh, accelerationism, or what I often see accelerationism light, uh, to be just really stupid is, I think, the simplest way to put it. Um, I've been wanting to write a little something about the left's uh, response to these teachers, uh, uh, the West Virginia teacher strike, and mm-hmm. the potentially the other ones. No criticisms of of these of the strikes themselves, but in terms of there is kind of this like almost accelerationism light. I've I've done a lot of labor reporting hmm. over over the last five years, but so Janice is of course going right. to come down. Um, yeah. The thing is, and I've been I hear people say who really don't know that much about how unions operate, but who are all about the working class, like you know, oh, there's going to be a silver lining, you know various silver linings and just like you i know, read a piece to that effect yeah yeah really i mean have you paid we've already have like a pretty vivid test case you notice what's gone on in wisconsin you know yeah. unions have been decimated but, yeah. in there and and the thing is also what's going on is people are kind of these teacher actions they're not all happening um in in like kind of the worst off states but that's where they seem to be concentrated right kentucky oklahoma arizona the ones that where the uh the most anti-union the workforces tend to be the most feminized and the teachers are basically almost on poverty wages so i mean is is that the solution that we just need to like drive the kind of the working class to ruin before they're going to revolt but okay so so I'm I'm sorry I don't, I'm not understanding what your criticism is with with regard to uh, what you what did you call it acceleration light accelerationism light that this is going to be the the herald some new wave of like uh, uh, labor activity it's a way that the left like leaps on to anything and thinks it's the next big thing that's going to change everything okay. right in a, in well, a, what, what's your skepticism because. First of all, when when people are parachuting in, to they don't understand, and it's like I said, it's because I've been doing labor reporting that you have to really understand the particularities of the community, of that particular work workforce, of the culture of of the region that they're organizing in, the laws, and you have to understand how that all works together because there are also limits. Like labor struggles under the NLRB are limited struggles, even the best of them. You know, even when we point to the Chicago Teachers Union, I mean, they're hamstrung in a lot of ways. And, you know, like Rahm Emanuel has been decimating uh, the public schools and, you know, what Rauner is is also doing with the the pensions and and education funding, the governor of of Illinois. Mm -hmm. And this is about a long-term political struggle 
Um, but there's also limits to what they are able to agitate around. What CTU did in Chicago was they showed there's, by law, you're only supposed to, uh, uh, you can only bring in issues related to contract negotiations. What CTU's innovation was that they brought in issues related to um, uh, the actual uh, students as as part of, of the workplace issues. But to sort of counterpose against that it's like from what i understand and i'm not i have no expertise no particular expertise the west virginia strike was technically illegal and it was still it was still effective as a movement so if if i feel like i understand your argument against it i'm not criticizing the strike i'm talking mm. about the response the popular the popular embrace the well, um oh, go on i was gonna, i was just going to say as i haven't really kept up on the response i'm aware of the strike and i've been following news stories about that but as i understand the definition of accelerationism as somebody who has no idea generally what's happening or what people are talking about my understanding was that accelerationism was just hoping that things get worse in order to heighten the contradictions so it's actually cool that trump is president and that sort of thinking mm -hmm. so i'm not entirely clear on how it applies here well janice is coming down the pike which is is going to basically decimate do you know janice no okay. who's janice <laughs> janice was the guitar player the hippie like guitar player <laughs> uh with floyd and zoot uh, as a member of dr teeth oh wow kermit like i really don't believe this weird trip you're putting us on oh uh, what's that janice oh the band and i just flashed on the closing number the band just flashed <laughs> i mean you know kermit sometimes i just don't know what space you're coming from. Well, well, it's just sort of a regular backstage space. Really, Kermit, you don't expect us to do the jousting number from Camelot. Uh, um, well, uh, any word, yes. Ew. I don't. That This is gibberish. <laughs> Are you having a stroke? What's going on? Uh, so, Jacob, of I course, told being him the not younger... to use pop cultural references beyond jackass, and look, he goes. Jacob, of course, being the youngest member here. So Janice is this uh, Supreme Court case that was uh, just heard. It's uh, going to bring uh, um, essentially uh, right to work uh, to public sector unions nationwide. It's probably going to destroy public sector unions. Uh, so that is where unionization is uh, heavily concentrated. Um, private sector unionism has basically all but disappeared. It's, I think, down to about 7%. Yep. Um, public sector, I think, still might be around 30%. Yeah, that's what I heard about a third. Yeah, much, much higher. And it's been this very concerted right-wing strategy that's been going on for for 50 years, and this is the culmination of it. Basically, what it, it does is it, it allows free riders. So people can with, with, um, be still be covered by the contract, but they don't have to pay uh, the union dues anymore. And so you hear a lot of arguments from people that, oh, well, you know, now unions are going to have to refer, uh, resort, go back to like class struggle unionism or militant unionism or social unionism. Wildcat strikes, yeah. You know, that, um, and I'm not, so apparently West Virginia, because I, I've been in contact with one of the kind of best 
people on this, Lois Wiener, I think, she said West Virginia is not a wildcat strike. Stop calling it that. Um, she's been covering. Okay, tell her I said sorry, and I'll stop calling her. <laughs> I will. I'll, I'll, I'll tell her you give her a personal apology and uh, a, a thin mint on her pillow. <laughs> well, I mean, there are actually consequences for what kind of a strike it is too right so yeah wildcat strike be- is where you're striking both against the bosses and your own labor leadership so there was like this wave of uh wildcat strikes in the early 1970s mm-hmm. um my dad he he worked as an engineer at bethlehem steel and uh there was one point where he couldn't go to work because uh the steel workers were on a, a wildcat strike there sure but beyond that there's actual rules about when you're allowed to strike and when you're not so well, that, that uh, is done at the state level. A lot of states have these various laws, um, like in New York State, it's called the Taylor Law that uh, says it's illegal for public sector employees to strike. So when uh, the um, transit workers uh, struck about, uh, I guess, 15-odd years ago... I remember that. Uh, they were... Um, you know that was declared illegal there were just massive fines or leadership and they knew what was going to happen uh, and the leadership i think was even might have been jailed for a couple of days um so that's not a, a federal uh uh law um so in the case of west virginia yes it, it was illegal to strike but this is so the power of labor is the power to withdraw its labor right Right. That's what makes labor so powerful um, as as really where when we talk about like uh, creating strong social movements, that they have the ability to actually like bring relations of production to, to a halt. In the case of West Virginia, it's it's a great example of how the law is not about the law. It's about social power. So even though it was illegal um, none of the counties went after any of the teachers because the teachers had so much social support for, from from parents from from the community. Yeah, broad base. You know, like um, I've had don't want to name check anyone. Not that it really matters, but I have relatives who like have been asking me since November of 2016, like when is Trump going to be impeached? When is Trump going to be impeached? And I'm like. Impeachment has nothing to do with the law. This yeah. is all about social right. power. You know. How do you even define what a high crime or misdemeanor is? I mean, that's essentially arbitrary. It's. I mean, it's not... You mean with regard to impeaching the president? Yeah, it's not yeah. codified. Yeah. So. Yeah. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Skyhill before, and you. Uh, I was wondering, like, so you, you've been writing what on and off, or how, how did you get hooked up with the Intercept? I, I only did one piece. Only did one piece. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I know them. Oh, okay. well, I, there I, you know. I know almost all their staff personally. Um, I've I've written for a lot of different uh, publications. Uh, a lot. I, I like to say the nation has become uh, the farm team uh, for the Intercept, um, and so I I knew all those folks. Uh, like probably about half their staff uh, comes from the nation uh, originally. Jeremy Scale, Liliana uh, Segura, uh, the executive editor. Uh, Betsy Reed, who I I knew, um, I just emailed her and say like, hey, I want to write for you guys regularly, and she said, sure, that sounds great. Um, and I did one story for them, and they said I can, you know, you know, 
write write regularly um but i was like fuck i got a book to do you know um as much as i would like to write for him uh, more um i have uh, had this book hanging over me for a few years uh, this food book okay well let's transition into the food book how was what do you what do you want to do with the food book and how was the how was your trip to europe to study sandwiches <laughs> i my kind of tongue-in-cheek joke was uh, i kept saying to my girlfriend I, I need a baseline right what my book is my book is called bacon as a weapon of mass destruction and it's about the social nature of taste so what i'm trying to do is come at the politics of food in a very different way you know there thousands and thousands of books about food mm -hmm. uh, uh, there's about a hundred of them on a bookcase on the other side of that wall too <laughs> yeah and you know and so it's it's hard to say something new about uh this subject where there's such a huge amount of writing uh and I just started to realize from my own experience, and then later, like folks, uh, some people like, oh, you need to check out uh, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, um, this uh, French uh, theorist who wrote this book called Distinction, uh, where he looks at various food, fashion, vacations, but his his argument is that these are all about uh, social class, that mm. uh, taste is about social class. Um, I think he, he goes a bit overboard with that because, you you know, as, as someone who used to cook professionally, there are some things that just objectively taste better. And there are lots yeah. of things that just subjectively taste like crap. Is he a Marxist? What like what's the what's the He's nature a materialist. of materialist critique? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 just that they become markers for social class, and you know, haute cuisine is not any better than like peasant cuisine. But the problem is, we're also talking about France, right? And so, one of uh, the most um, as as there because that sounds kind of true to me. Like like, there's certain aspects of. I remember when I started working, like, I'm, a, and I'm an accountant, and when I first, I, before that I worked, like, fast food jobs, basically, and then I became an accountant, and then I started working in offices, and I didn't know what the fuck to do, but everyone was talking about, like, I remember scotch, that was when everyone was getting into scotch, and there was fucking nothing behind it, except some sort of class signaling you know what i mean like they didn't maybe they grew to love scotch i don't fucking know but talk about commodity uh, fetishism yeah exactly like like so i don't know that seems kind of all right to me <laughs> well did fast food taste worse to you after you became an accountant no i love fast food <laughs> especially popeyes so i mean uh and you know what? That's interesting because Popeyes might be the the one exception I'm I'm willing to make. So part of my argument is is you know I want to argue against like food shaming and 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 mm. and uh, body shaming unless it's Donald Trump, of course. Uh, and, or Chris Christie. <laughs> yep. Uh, and this is coming from uh, four portly guys, yeah. you know. Uh, and portly is being kind. Maybe yeah, maybe Zaftig, you yeah, know, no, Ru no, Rubenes. Yeah, no, beer is my I thing, like not, not food. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so look, if if you like McDonald's, that's fine. I I think people should not apologize for what they like because often taste is a marker, not just for social class. It has can have a lot to do with nostalgia and and memory and 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 comfort. Uh, 
and you know <laughs> who knows you know sex and 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 what maybe nice. you had like you know you covered someone in big macs and ate it off them or vice versa and so you have this really fond like uh sexual fetish. i had my fun in college sure yeah mm-hmm. yeah I, so. I see somebody's gotten early access to the stormy daniels <laughs> Uh, that that in, that involved uh, um, a bucket of KFC, you know. Um, hey, and, everybody has their own foreplay. Um, how much of the? I'm curious. Why why did you decide to uh, select bacon uh, as the uh, as the titular subject, as it were? Because I'm, I'm kind of curious how much of how much you're going into like bacon as mid aughts like ironic internet thing. I love bacon. Uh, so the the funny thing is that this originally began as an article, and uh, and the article uh, began as a joke um, that I just came up with the line: uh, "Bacon as a weapon of mass destruction." Basically, I, I did pulled an onion, where you come up with the headline first and you write an article mm-hmm. from it, mm-hmm. and so I, I and. People found it funny, and I, I wrote, and I ended up writing an article because I was at a party about ten years ago where um, someone had bought. Uh, it was a potluck, had uh, made bacon ice cream and bacon vodka, and I'm like. I love bacon, but this is ridiculous. And then I started researching, and there has been this huge uh, explosion in uh, increase in bacon consumption. And it's also something that is actually promoted. And when when you start to look more and more into it, it, it gets more. Now, the destruction end is you can talk about different ways. There, there's kind of the ecological destruction in terms of the CAFOs, the concentrated animal feeding operations, You know right. where you have these like cities size porcine uh you know manufacturing uh, operations yeah. yeah processing plants right where you know the biggest ones uh they're producing more shit per day than salt lake city um on, on, yeah, no, on they, they're fucking heartbreaking and, mm-hmm. and gross but they're fucking heartbreaking well interestingly five years ago i was able to get into a cafo in in iowa a hog cafo and um, I was invited on a, a journalist contact, had relatives who ran it, and it was actually fine. What's that word? Uh, a CAFO, CAFO, I'm not sure how it's uh, your spot. C-A-F-O, Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's, it's especially was used for cattle because traditionally cattle are, are grass-fed, but uh, it was discovered, oh, well, you know, if we take them uh, um, after they feed on grass, and you can bulk up the weight, you yeah, can they turn, around, weight. turn around the production time. So, but, you know, part of the... The industrialization of agriculture and animal husbandry, um, the the animal itself starts to change dramatically, right? So pigs would give have one litter a year. Uh, they're now up to 2.1 uh, mm-hmm. litters per year on average. You know, the normal used to be like whatever, like half a dozen, eight, ten. Um, now they'll have up to two dozen. Uh, because uh, Per litter? Yeah. Jesus. Now, because bacon has become so popular, uh, f- the hog farmers have actually been breeding the hogs to have uh, longer pork bellies um, and, I th- and an extra rib. 
Um, so they're selecting. So they're actually changing the animal itself to meet the needs of the market. Now, this actually starts a lot earlier, but the whole other white meat campaign, which is total bullshit. You know, it's just like pork is a red meat. It has to do with the compounds uh, in the yeah. blood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yet, so they were able to get away with this completely fraudulent campaign. You're only supposed, if you care, you're only supposed to have 2.5 ounces of red meat per day. That's only about one pound per week. I love red meat, but I try to limit it. Um, that's just me. If you want to eat like 10 pounds, I don't care. Do whatever you like. Um, but above about 2.5 ounces a day, there's you see increases in various cancers, in uh, heart disease, and, and strokes, and all, all the fun stuff, right? So bacon has all these uh, deleterious effects on the environment, on healthcare, but from a gastronomic perspective, it does as well, because there's an actual saying in the restaurant industry, you will see it in kind of the business trade journals, when in doubt, put bacon and cheese on it. Right. The Whopper says, don't just go to lunch, go wild. Try our new extreme bacon and cheese Whopper. We went wild with two slices of melted Monterey Jack, two slices of cheddar, and four strips of crispy bacon, all on a quarter pound of plain broiled beef. So you want any dish to bump up the flavor. It's a really simple way. A salad, a baked, any sort of vegetable, any sort of like finished meat dish. I mean, even fucking like desserts these days, you know, you can put bacon and cheese on them. They each cost a few pennies and you can, you realize like, you know, 10 times the amount you can charge what your input is. So it's kind of, you know, bacon can be seen as kind of like leveling everything in its path. And I'm I'm sure folks are familiar with like Michael Pollan's book Omnivore's Dilemma. Yep. So I fucking hate that guy. <laughs> so, no, it's on Dude, the uh, on the shelf over there. So I on this topic when I was getting my bachelor's degree, you have to do this capstone for seniors, and I picked one called I don't remember what it was called. You know, local food systems or something like that, and it was. <clears throat> It felt like a an experience in just feeling sh- uh, sh- uh, ashamed by a group of, of well-meaning liberals that were better people than me uh, <laughs> because I like fast food. But um, but we read not the omno no yeah we read the omnivore's dilemma and I just I found that guy so sanctimonious sanctum well he's sanctimonious and and, and it, it is the epitome of the sort of uh, uh, do you know who Peter Singer is the the Australian philosopher the <laughs> Hell fucking yeah. shitty. I became a vegetarian for seven years after reading. Uh, uh, was it Animal Liberation? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a good book. Don't get me wrong. Like he's not wrong, but the point is, is that his his philosophy is neoliberalism. It is, it 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 is the well. This is the system that's always going to exist. So we better be the best individuals we can be. Right. You're talking uh, about pollen, right? Well, both of them actually, yeah. but but Peter Singer too. Okay. Uh, are you a big Peter Singer fan? I find him uh, enjoyable. I don't necessarily subscribe to everything he says. I but. think as a I think as a moral philosopher, he's he's not going to outlast. Uh, uh, I, I think he seems like a perfectly lovely man, but as a moral philosopher, he's not going to outlast capitalism. Which you know that might mean nothing. Capitalism could go on forever. 
Well, I haven't read uh, Poland. My boss has, which makes sense. Well, but, it, Peter yep. Sing, Peter Singer is be- way better. Like I, yeah, I would I would put him over. Well, the the reason I bring up uh, the omnivore's dilemma is because um, what I want to actually talk about is um, th- what I call the paradox of uh, monotony. Um, in in other words, we have very much a monocultural diet. Humans mm-hmm. have bred something like estimates vary. Let's use a low end estimate: thirty thousand species of plants mm-hmm. for nutritional or caloric intake. Um, th- that's species, right? So uh, there's only one species of apple, but there are thousands of varietals mm-hmm. of apple. Only one species of corn, but probably over ten thousand. There are seven species of of wheat, thirty two thousand varietals. Um, so most of what, even if you have like a meat, dairy heavy diet, still most of what you eat is is plant based. Mm-hmm. Um, guess how many plants account for over ninety percent of the American diet? About two. <laughs> Corn and yeah. Corn, wheat, uh, soy, rice, sugar beets, potato, tomato, and then bounces back and forth between some fruit like either orange or banana or apple. Um, and, you know, that's orange and apple. It's mainly just the juice uh, that, that you're getting. So we actually have like an incredibly narrow diet. What we have now, you go into your average supermarket, there are 48,000 uh, food and beverage items, distinct items. We have this incredible uh, uh, product differentiation, right? You know, but they're all the same few uh, ingredients, uh, ultimately, that are formulated uh, different ways. And everything else combined, all, all the spices, all the vegetable, all, all the produce, it's that's the less than 10%. And even within that, there's maybe then like, you know, a dozen other plants that probably accounts for 10%. Mm. Well, it's like so, super, supermarket as Taco Bell menu. Right. And so I, I grew up in an Indian American household, and so I, I kind of had this, you know, a very dichotomous uh, culinary upbringing. Um, one, my mom is a fantastic cook. She had her own catering business for her, a while, so that's where I got my my real love of food. But we were also just, I mean, we would eat stuff that you just don't even see it in, in American culture. Or if you see it, it's it's pretty rare. I mean, you know, we would eat okra and eggplant, but we would also eat stuff like uh, jackfruit and, and bitter mm. melon and uh, fenugreek leaves. What and, about durian? Uh, no, that that's it's, it's more... Uh, 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 China, it's uh, South Asia, and and also durian has a very specific use. It is just as as a fruit. There's not a lot of durian recipes that I'm familiar with. You get some custards, I think, but it's it's. Um, you know, but in, in in any case, like you know, and when I would go to India, there'd just be like you're eating this incredible amount of of different types of uh, vegetables or or legumes and and lentils. Like you know, I've been my mom's been teaching me how to cook various stuff for years. And last year, um, when I visited, uh, uh, I spent some time with them uh, on the east coast, and uh, because I just wanted to learn lentils. And she, in her pantry, she has like twenty containers full of different types of different lentils. kinds huh? yeah and <laughs> because it's it's one of the you know staples of, of the indian diet and so and so i'm used to eating like beans and lentils virtually every day right the average american eats a tablespoon and a half per month 
of 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 beans or lentils. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I mean, like I've dug into all this USDA data, wow. which is the best <laughs> stuff on, and it's extreme. A tablespoon and a half. Yeah. Well, you have to understand that's an average. So there isn't somebody with a tablespoon like measuring that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is one. And I'm done for the month. Oh, that's one and three <laughs> yeah. quarter. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, like the whole kale is the rock star vegetable. It's, this is basically the, the gastronomic 1%. I, I looked. Um, when you, you know, the USDA, they have all these, they follow it through the whole uh, supply chain, right? You know, in terms of farm to retail, retail loss. Then when you bring it home, the trim, then what gets thrown out. And so when you look at actually what the... Kale consumption has increased. Um, it's increased by the cooked amount, one tablespoon uh, per person per year. Well, that's good. Right? Of, of cooked kale a year. That that's the increase. I, I dated I dated a vegan for eight years, so uh, <laughs> I had a lot of kale and a lot of lentils. You you were probably eating you know enough kale for like all of Gresham or something. Yeah. Well, Gresham. (laughs) So I know with, and I'm way outside of my comfort zone here, things like corn, for example, there's a massive amount of lobbying and governmental shenanigans that basically create a lot of really perverse incentives. As far as bacon goes, to what extent is that happening? What, what is the, 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 the same exact thing uh, happens with all these uh, big agricultural commodities that uh, I mean what it what it is is the commodities um, the subsidies go to help the huge agribusinesses you've seen in recent decades uh, uh, the growth of you now have farms that have uh, the upper end are over 50 million dollars a year in revenue um, I mean for a farm that is that is yeah. extraordinary the yeah. the ca- pretty good yeah the cafo i went now now the thing is what what's really kind of fascinating this uh the hog farm i went to in iowa is a um middle-aged couple um with the uh, uh, long roots and uh deep roots in iowa uh, the wife she said her uh ancestors had settled the town of independence iowa in the early uh, 1800s and so they're in their 50s and they are raising nine to ten thousand hogs a year. They own they own um, a farrowing operation. That that's a nursery. They didn't let me into the farrowing operation. That's what I really wanted to see. The, that's what's supposed to be pretty uh, nasty, right? That's where the sows uh, are never able to turn around. They're they're in these uh, crates, um, and they don't want them to turn around because they uh, will get up, turn around, and lie down and crush piglets, and and that's a loss. Um, but it was remarkable how much of uh farming is a turnkey operation and it it really started to click this is why we need now i've i've done all these road trips uh, starting with covering occupy wall street in in 2011 i've done eight road reporting road trips since then across the country and uh taking all sorts of different routes and basically america is a giant factory and it's a factory it's an open air factory producing corn and soy and wheat yep. um uh, something like i think of half 
uh, I just looked this up. I think it's 40% of all potentially arable land is under cultivation in, in the United States. And the reason that this is so important, even though farming itself is so tiny, it's it's like it's something like down to one half of 1% of the population. The massive amount of inputs that go into these farms, all these other industries it supports. So this couple, um, they have 1,200 uh acres uh they would uh, grow corn and soy for uh the hogs or or and some they would sell it as well um and so i was asking them all about like you know their the growing season and cycle one it's you know the the tractor is like all gps controlled mm -hmm. right you know they can it's almost like hands off at this point right um they don't as like how about like spraying it's just like we outsource that we could buy a combine for half a million or we spend $30,000 a season to have someone come and spray. They used to haul their own shit, but now there's so many hogs, it takes three uh, tanker trucks to haul it, so that's outsourced. They used to mill their own grain, um, but uh, the Joe, the uh, husband, said, um, you know, we only had, uh, our mill only had two rollers. Now there's this one, uh, you know, like, uh, at the other end of town it has seven lo rollers and they can do it much finer and what they're doing is that they are they roll they uh, grind it to incredible precision to microns because what they're trying to do is they want to maximize the nutritional intake of the hogs but they don't want it so fine that they create a bolus in the stomach and abrade the stomach and cause ulcers so you want to like and it's down to microns yeah, just, that, you want to tune it precisely right so everything is outsourced we were standing out there for hours and um, the hogs would just uh, come up to the the troughs and there's these giant like they look like four giant hamster feeders each holding six tons of grains everything is computer controlled the the um, grain comes out the water comes out it's it's all sensors you could basically if you had the money you could go to Iowa and start up a farm in a week uh, that's completely uh, automated, automated. And squat I, goals <laughs> <laughs> and I asked them like what's the biggest change that you've seen uh, in your lifetime and it's like we don't know our neighbors anymore uh, because there's so much tenant farming and Wall Street has gotten into the business right yeah. so you now have these mat so land is just being like you know bought and sold and rented um, and people are just shifting around and I'm pretty good at math, and so, and they didn't know this. And I was like, "Oh, so how much is uh, your land worth?" And they're like, "About seventeen hundred an acre." And I'm like, "Oh, so it's worth two million dollars." <laughs> and they just looked at each other and didn't they just say a word. Slapped you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean they're multimillionaires, lovely people. Um, but yeah. So so when you said earlier it's not so bad, what did you mean by that? Well, look, I mean. I, I'm not going to justify the CAFOs, but this particular one, and I, like I said, I, they wouldn't let me into the farrowing yeah. operation. Which must have been. Um, that They they own that with two you know, other families. because a thousand corpses. In and, and they did tell me, like, you know, a couple, like a year or two earlier, that they lost nearly all, uh, like, entire seasons worth of piglets. Like, there was, like, something oh, like. Oh, some a, disease? Yeah, mono, yeah, 50, 60% mortality monoculture, rate. Monoculture die-off, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. There was there was no there was no real smell. Uh, they have these. They're well ventilated. Uh, the hogs were clean. Um, I mean, they they look like 
fucking hot dogs they are identical um <laughs> uh you know just like hot dogs with like little legs and and eyes um there there wasn't any dead animals i mean they knew i was coming you know but at the same time it wasn't this uh yeah they were like Petey, shape up they're yeah. true yeah uh, yeah i mean it is it is an industrial scale uh food operation and they, they do have an incentive to not wanting disease and you know i still am filled by despair with, with you <laughs> fucking the hamster feet but uh, uh real quick it's like just um i don't know how much time we have the two things i did want to talk about uh if you uh if you still feel like talking to us is one of them was on covering like i don't know like right, right-wing ops and the other one is just uh thoughts on uh portlanders uh portlanders weird obsession and freakouts about food <laughs> <laughs> uh, point, like, whichever, whichever of the two, if you want to do both or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah, just... we can, we can, we can. You know, uh, so I covered uh, the Bundy occupation uh, the last week of it. Uh, I, I went down to um, the encampment uh, a number of, of times and uh, hung out there and interviewed uh, a bunch of them. I got how far was the drive? Uh, well, I flew into Portland and then drove out out there, so I think it was about three hundred miles. Um, you know, this day's drive wasn't that big of a deal, gotcha. uh, especially if you drive across the country regularly. Um, yeah, that was kind of that for me. Really, bookended twenty sixteen. That was one, you know, and I because I also covered the campaign. Um, you know, like. I did a piece uh, about um, uh, the little uh, Hitler youth out on uh, uh, Portland State University. Uh, um, so to see kind of this whole like rise of the radical right, I mean, none of it really surprised me because I think there's... <sighs> I mean, America. Americans just don't do history well, and including the left. I mean, one of the things I, I kept saying is just like, why is anyone surprised that there is such a violent racist backlash to Obama? Every time in American history there is black social and political upsurge, there is a violent white response that that happened with the slave rebellions uh, uh in the antebellum period it happened right after the, the the civil war with the rise of the Klan, of course the great migration north um uh, the you know during world war one and the 1920s this was a time like people don't even know this history i think even on the left uh don't you guys know what sundown towns are oh yeah yeah i what, what were those uh, were they called green books uh, they were basically guides for black travelers. Yeah, to know. yeah, yeah. They, 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 yeah it's the uh, subject of the upcoming. Um, I think Jordan Peele produced uh, HBO series about uh, called Lovecraft County. It revolves around a a family that produces those and researches them. Yeah, yeah. I've always heard that within reference to like jazz musicians and stuff that they. Yeah. Anyway, so I. Uh, I, I'm allowed to say this because I was called it regularly as a kid. So Sundown Town uh, comes uh, uh, apocryphal or maybe not. That towns would literally have signs, and I hate 
saying literally, but it seems to be a thing. Close, uh, close uh, enough. If it's literal, then yeah. Uh, don't ha- like, don't, would, don't would, like even worry about it. Would have signs that said, uh, uh, "Nigger, don't be caught in this town after sundown." Uh, and so the historian James Lowen, who did the, the book on Sundown Town, yeah, that that was what I couldn't remember if it was James Lowen or Dave Newart or yeah, yeah. Uh, so he said, uh, I think he's from Illinois. He said when he started, he expected to find a dozen uh, or so sundown towns in Illinois. And he said at last count, it's either 500 or 1,000. Just and so they're, just in Illinois? Yeah, yeah. And so once you also start to like research the history, and it's just like, it's like, you know, it's it's kind of almost archaeological. Like, I mean, I only recently learned about uh, Page, Arkansas. I think it is. Do you guys know that Page, word with an I or just P A G E? I think it's P A I G E. Not ringing a bell. One of the worst pogroms, and pogroms is the correct term, right? Yeah. Um, in the 1920s, something like 300 African Americans killed. Right. Holy yeah. Shit. Um, you know, it's on par with a uh, uh, Tulsa. Tulsa. You know, I, I went um, through Tulsa about five years ago when uh, two guys, one a white guy and the other part Native American, went on a killing spree, killing black people. Um, and of course, this just totally rips open the wounds of uh, the destruction of uh, Black Wall Street in 1923, right. when the, uh, including a, a plane from the U.S. Army Air Force flew over and dropped a bomb. Um, I love how that's called the uh, Tulsa riots. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. But, you know, 1918 or 1919 was Red Summer, where the, you know, East St. Louis estimates are 100 to 200 African Americans killed. Um, there's a. Uh, um, Rosewood, Florida, right. uh, maybe up to, and these were pogroms. And meanwhile, this is only, I think, really been starting to seep out of scholarly work in the last decade or so. Um, thousands of Chicanos killed in the Southwest in the early 1900s, uh, mm-hmm. um, often uh, directly by the Texas Rangers who yep. were leading uh, mass- massacres. And of course, also you know, kids frequently kidnapped. Yeah. So, you know, this this is a, a pretty uh, uh, horrific uh, legacy um, uh, that we have here. And so to see, you know, in 2016 that uh, and, you know, Mormonism uh, was uh, like an extremely, you know, I mean, it's like white supremacy. I mean, one, one could say almost, I think, eugenist uh, religion. Uh, uh, black people were theologically uh, the devil um, until they finally changed that in like the late 1970s. And, why, and the, do you remember? You ever hear the rumor of why they changed it? BYU's basketball team. I heard. <laughs> well, I heard. I heard, I heard football, but yes. Okay. <laughs> and and that may be it. But the real impetus was they realized, uh, oh, we we can grow massively in, right. in the third world. Like Brazil yeah. is, you know, that, that's I think what really led them uh, to to change it. Of course, like any good. Cat- capitalist uh, enterprise it's just like here's a growth market here <laughs> just like uh, Coors became uh, you know Coors beer became all gay, gay friendly when it's just like oh shit man you know <laughs> yeah. just like these dance clubs as an ex-Mormon I just want to jump in here uh, they weren't the devil they were just cursed it was the curse of Cain so or Mark or curse of ham I think in some of them mm-hmm. I think Ham. You- there's a tie-in as, <laughs> so, in, ha- as in ham beer 
uh, or Ham's beer versus ha- the uh, the book of ham or or pigs. Ham's yeah. man, that's a bad hangover. Too many hams. Okay, but so, it's been cool since '78. So right, we're good. Okay, so can you explain where like Cain came back with a wife? If like him and Abel were like the only ones uh, kicking it, like where where did he find the ladies? At? Why do you think they were the only ones kicking it? <laughs> because Adam and Eve, you know. Well, just... Adam and Eve were the first. That doesn't mean, necessarily mean that they were the only ones. Yeah, but there's like, there, a, trust me. There's there's ways to explain all of this. Yeah. Okay, but, could you could you explain the 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 um, two uh, contradictory um, origin stories in Genesis? I mean, I can, but uh, if you're looking for the official <laughs> theological reason, yeah, I, say, I, 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 I can do it really quick. I went through Presbyterian Catechism, and I can't, I can't, I forget the. Uh, so there's one where God did it one way and said, "I'm going to do it this other way." Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm God. Know. I can do whatever. I'm going Kierkegaard on this one. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't logic it because God can do what's impossible. Wait, wouldn't it be more Schrodinger's cat? You know. Well, I don't. I, well, I don't so, know anything about fancy science. I mean, if you really want to get confusing with the Mormons, you just have to ask them about the archaeological records, which is basically why I lost my faith. But About uh, finding the tablets in a field in Elmira, you know. And the issues with things like horses and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Are, are they, is it, ha, do, had to, to do with the age of the earth? Is that what you're talking about, or? The Book of Mormon makes specific claims about basically a group of people traveling to the Americas. Right. And it has specific claims about the history of the Americas that are not really supported by the evidence. One being when horses got here? Yeah, and I'm sure there's one Mormon listening to this who's super offended, and if so, feel free to email me and we can hash this out. Excuse me. Well, I do have one question real quick. What do the radical right eat? Uh... Well, they're 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 meat and potatoes people, right. you know. Um, though they they do have you know a fetish for MREs, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. of makes sense. Yeah, of course they do. Yeah, it's so delicious. <laughs> Idiots. Well, speaking of, I guess just yeah, you know, of like what are we? It's kind of, and this also I think kind of might connect up with. Um, your your comments earlier about you know you, you not not exactly holding the modern left in the highest esteem. Can you talk about um, if you would just like what did, thoughts on just like like bougie ass Portland people freaking out about food? <laughs> so Left, I'm, I'm, lefty or lefty not you know non ideological or not I guess. But I've, I've I've been on the left for the last thirty years, and the thing is, it's it's just it's such a dismal state of affairs, and I think the left loves to always. Uh, Many leftists love to blame external forces rather than like think about like, oh, maybe, you know, we might be doing something wrong. Like after Occupy Wall Street, there was this whole narrative about like, oh, the cops broke up Occupy or, or you know, even with the, the 60s, oh, it was like state repression. And it's just like, you know what? Every movement in the world has to deal with state repression, often and it's not to downplay what's gone on here, but often far more horrifying than what's gone on here. And sometimes these movements are successful, uh, like various revolutions in Latin America, Southern Africa, the Vietnamese, two to three million killed, and yet they defeated two empires. Right. Um, Technically three if you call the Chinese. Uh 
Well, I mean, they didn't. You, you're talking about the border war they had in the late 70s. I mean, I think it was earlier than that, but anyway. You no, saw. the Japan occupied. Oh, Japan, the, yeah. Uh, but they didn't kick them out. Like, oh, okay. Like, uh, the, but Ho Chi Minh uh, and the, the National Liberation Front did march in and, uh, to uh, Hanoi after uh, the Japanese uh, uh, were gone and uh, um, declared independence. Set up shop. Yeah, and uh, he, uh, I think he he read the Declaration of Independence because he is specifically trying to appeal to uh, the United States to like, hey, don't reimpose the colonial, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, colonial administration. So in any case, so this is coming from a, a place where I I've been on the left and I've spent time in like over 50 cities in the past decade and uh, Portland is just say has some unusual politics um, so I'll, I'll explain this in, in kind of a broader way and then we can talk about the specifics so sure. what I realized about Portland and I was, I was joking with a friend not really joking um, Portland has this um uh, white guilt spectrum disorder uh, because there's very variants on there's liberal white guilt there's kind of like progressive and radical white guilt and there's revolutionary uh, uh, white guilt they all take uh, their own um, forms so but the the thing about the American left is it has very little and and by left my definition of left is uh you have to be anti-capitalist you know it's not enough to be like you know of course there are other things that are necessary like being a feminist you know uh being like a supporter of organized labor being mm-hmm. anti-racist but in and of themselves it's not enough you know because with hillary clinton we we get neoliberal and imperial feminism you know when when you silo an identity as important as I think the politics of identity can be, it becomes identitarianism. Right. Um, and, and that's an important distinction. We don't want to throw, you know, the baby out with the bathwater. So, but being anti-capitalist, I think, and the anti-capitalist, organized anti-capitalist left is pretty small. I mean, DSA has quickly become the biggest, and who knows how many of them are ultimately even anti-capitalist. Um, big, a big ten organization. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a dues-paying DSA member, you know, as you know, but yeah. Yeah, I guess full disclosure, I am as well. But I, I think it's interesting because I know a lot of people that I would call you know, like I guess your sort of standard issue Democrats that 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 at least believe they're anti-capitalism. Uh, they may be anti-corporation, right? Yeah. You know, and the, the, so look, most most you can be in in some cadre or organization, and I think there are cadre organizations out there that are doing genuinely good work. And <clears throat> even if you're like going to ten hours of meetings a week. Um, that means over 90% of your life is still structured by capitalist right. forces. You know, everything you do from the moment you wake up to your sleeping hours is about these are these are all products of, of some sort of corporation. You're probably working directly or indirectly uh, for some corporation. You're certainly a wage laborer unless unless you're, you know, a trustafarian. And then that's uh, not a strategy. And that's probably going to be problematic if you're a trustafarian. Um, 
your communications are done through shit like Facebook and and Twitter and you know what Google too, yeah. yeah so it, it's like your life is structured by market forces and that and the, if we talk about social relations that also creates no matter how much you think of yourself as a revolutionary you know that still creates a lot of that warps the social relations between you and other members in that organization and that's right. very few people who are in like you know like quote unquote revol you know like probably not even 10,000 are actually in in organized revolutionary uh, uh anti-capitalist uh, outfits you know DSA has what like 30,000 members now i mean 35 the, plus yeah yeah the the thing is and you know this is a little bit of a, a, a let's say critique rather than criticism it's it's charismatic based leadership right it's it's not a, a cadre based leadership is going to be much tighter much more disciplined and my feeling is that's where dsa needs to move more towards uh cadre base base rather than charismatic because we see what happens with kind of the worst of charismatic leadership in the in portland with that intersection of 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 white guilt um charismatic people uh and social media and so what happens is it allows people to jump on an event now this isn't a, a criticism of portland's resistance mm. at, at all i know many people who do have uh critiques of, of portland's resistance but it is it is a truth that a couple of people responded to the election of trump you know put up a, a web page uh quickly called for protests quickly and they then become the spokesperson, the spokespeople for the resistance. They're being called by the BBC and the New York Times and being profiled. And yet, where is the accountability? Who said, like, hey, you should be the leadership of the anti-Trump movement? Right. Yeah, they were it, just there first. Right. And so this and so you're basically able to commodify and capitalize on it, even if you have the best of intentions. Like I said, I'm just describing a, a, a phenomena that exists now. Mm. Then you get people, and I'm not going to name names, but other people who may not have the best of intentions. Um, and you know, you especially see this around these like bizarre, like um, uh, food policing uh, in 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 Portland. You know, there was a uh, the attack on the uh, two women who um, opened a burrito cart. You know, because they wrote this like uh, tone deaf, or there was this interview that was pretty tone deaf um, where they were talking about like being in uh baja california and you know and just like whatever it's not the end of the world if if these two white girls are like making burritos the irony of it though is they were renting um from this other guy um a person of color who had a burrito truck so by shutting their like weekend uh burrito uh cart down he lost business right, right. and it, the cart is no longer where it was right I don't know if it's. I don't know if he's if he's out of business. I just know that the cart ain't there anymore because it's. I, uh, I know where the cart used to be. 
Right. So, okay, so, you know, um, or recently now, like, there's someone who's attacking this Russian restaurant because some guy came in with this shirt that said Luftwaffe that may have been, all Luftwaffe means is Air Force, but it had an eagle on it, which is no longer part of it. You know, the, the German Air Force is now currently called Luftwaffe, right? Like Lufthansa, right? So, I. Uh, it had an eagle on it, so it may have been like an alt-right, you know, pro-Nazi thing. But having worked in restaurants for a couple of years, it's just like, I'm sorry. You know, if you're running a restaurant, you've got better things to do than like police what people are, what T-shirts they're wearing. And but the person who jumped on it, you know, this is typical. They turned it, they put it on social media. It, it went viral. They're calling for a boycott. Meanwhile, this like the restaurant and the chef, it's like refugees and people of color. And one of the owners uh, family was killed in the Holocaust. And it's just like, really, are you serious? You know, you're, you're trying to shut them down because there was some dude who may or may not have been an asshole in, in the restaurant who they have no response ability for it's a lot of uh moralizing you yeah. know that that it's easy to do and i think this is kind of typical of uh uh the american uh left um so is that the t-shirt he wore or is that the uh is that one that is the current luftwaffe this is being claimed to be the shirt that was worn yeah, I mean that that is not the Nazi eagle. It does have an eagle, but it, it's not that kind of classic. You the know. gothic looking. Yeah, I can't remember the yeah, name of it. Yeah, but yeah. it almost looks the, more, like, more like a more, more, eagle or something. More American eagle, you know. Yeah, it's flying free, you know, like, you know. But but speaking of like, you know, it's just like, hey, what if they're wearing like, you know, uh, some sort of Desert Storm T-shirt? I mean, we have killed over one million Iraqi people. You know, people who just you know made the wrong choice to be born in iraq you know um, what you're saying is that it was a good idea to attack this person but just because it said air force not necessarily because of the nazi association i can get behind that <laughs> um i i what i was saying thank you very much it was <laughs> it was good to attack him because he was white yeah all i'm right. on board for that yeah. yeah yeah you've had it too good for too long i know i know well, I mean, we're half half of this room, so we're on our way. Yeah. I noticed that you criticize capitalism, but you're using a phone. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Got it. Oh shit! Bah, 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 bah. shit. <laughs> I know. I, I mean, you, you should. I think you should do a big expose about me. Yeah. Um. So this is me and Ryan Bundy. Oh nice. shit! It's sitting in the cab of his pickup truck. I got a two-hour lecture on the Constitution. <laughs> did, uh, did you tape it or just kind of like sit there and like make and like make little notes? Did he ever no, say? No, no, I, I, right. I, I taped it. Um, and so, can you see what's in the coffee holder? Are those like are those two are those a two semi, are those semi two semi semi automatics magazines? Oh, they're magazines. Okay, don't yeah. call them clips. Yep. Yep, loaded of, uh, he's like, um, uh, I'm, guessing, so, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing they're Glocks. 
Uh, no, no, it's 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 for for a semi-automatic. Um... That's just so disgusting to me. Why wouldn't you have like a special compartment for? magazines like this is something that ford and those other companies yeah. really need to jump on yeah gross. It, it just doesn't fit no it's, it's more... because they hate america yeah that's what's well, more of a it's more it's more something they leave for the aftermarket crowd there's a pretty strong sovereign citizen contingent with those guys right uh well you know it, it was definitely crossover yeah yeah they, 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 there was be. some i mean it it kind of you know, it it attracted all the 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 lunatics. I mean, the thing was, um, at the occupation itself, there weren't they were being very selective about who they were letting in, and but you know they knew they were good about like uh, uh, using the media, so they would let the media in because they knew that was kind of uh, uh, was really important. Town of Burns and what the, there's some other like small town that's part of it. Um, you know, it's one of these like two conjoined uh, tiny towns. Yeah, um, it was filled with all these other like uh, freelance operators, all these militiamen, and you know, just people like. I mean, there was one night I just went to a bar and I, I met these uh, two guys. Uh, um, this one guy, the voice of. Idaho or something like that. So there, there's this whole ecology of like right wing grassroots media, and as someone who was involved in indie media, well, and I'm a like, lot of it in the Northwest as well. Yeah, I'm like Idaho, this yeah. is really bizarre. And these guys, you know, it was him and some uh, African American kid. Even though the the, the African American guy was like I think around thirty years old, he acted like he was about fourteen year old, fourteen years old. Was his uh, cameraman. And it was just like, you know, it's, uh, what, what they were explaining to me, uh, and the kid was explaining to me at one point, like, you know, um, about how you shouldn't eat GMOs because they interact with the fluoride and the chemtrails and cause uh, the uh, neurological uh, changes. So he was really big into uh, clean eating. And That's what my research shows. Yeah. And um, that that actually, you know, if uh, Portland had a parliamentary system, I think that would uh, g get uh, at least one city council yeah. seat. Minority yeah, the, party, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the chemtrail fluoride uh, GMO party. Um, it actually, <laughs> that could vie for majority power, you know. Well, what about instead of political ideologies, it is just what diet you're into, and then that's how we arrange politics. Let's just try it for 20 years and <laughs> right. just see what happens. But anyways, uh, <laughs> just so we sound uh, <laughs> like keto, you really are what you eat. <laughs> yeah, um, Aaron, we want to thank you again a lot for uh, taking the time to come out here and tell us all your stories and put up with our bullshit and uh, our. Um, well, I like to call our show less than structured. Um, do you have anything you would like to promote, or anything upcoming, or any, or even anything you would like to recommend that uh, folks check out? What's a food you think everybody should eat? Um, what is a food I think everyone should eat? Eh, none. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I will say, um, uh, if you, uh, cook Indian food, um, and you were not raised in that culture, 
Um, Stop. You may like it and be proud of it, and that's perfectly fine, but don't invite me over for dinner. Fair oh, enough. Damn. Shots yeah. fired. <laughs> um, Bollywood Cafe sucks, um, in my opinion. Um, they're, they're, I haven't been there, no. Yeah. I mean, like, I... People keep telling me, oh, you need to go to Bollywood. You need to go to Bollywood. And Why would they tell you that? Uh, well, because I'm an Indian. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's Those just like I, I go around wearing a, a giant diaper like uh, Gandhi, <laughs> you know. And so, you know, and uh, I say, where's the curry? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, was TPUSA culturally appropriating when they pulled the diaper stunt? I'll have to think about that. Oh, what that's, was that? That, let's, that let's, might be too turn, online. Let's put a pin on that. That might be too online. But <laughs> Turning Point USA? Yeah, the the Kent State thing. Okay. I didn't... Uh, Kent State Redux. Okay. Um, I have a book coming out. Uh, well, next year or the year after, uh, Bacon as a Weapon of Mass Destruction, the new press. I will come through Portland, and uh, it'll it'll be fun. Um, cool. You let's know, come back on. Yeah. And... Uh, I, I'm speaking at some conference. Uh, I think Corvallis is what you told me. Correct. Yes, yeah. I have your schedule here, sir. Yeah, and it yeah. it says Corvallis. Yeah, on yeah. The, that's on the Which clip. is embarrassing because I've, they've invited me to speak there before. <laughs> I just get all the universities it's, out here. It's a cute. I was like, is it the one town. in Eugene? Because I've spoken there as well. April seventh. Um, I'm uh, talking about. Uh, uh, I think the title is something about uh, uh, police property and Protestantism, and so kind of explaining why the right is so powerful and the, mm -hmm. the left is uh, so weak, and understanding how the what the left needs to do historically to get out of its uh, um, uh, really uh, precarious state. And uh, um, the most important thing you can do on the left is uh, a Attack people on social media for not using the perfect language done, done. or or, com or symbols that you have approved. Um, mm -hmm. uh, have you seen this stuff like people going after the pussy hats? Yes, I have a little bit because yeah. not not all women have pussies and mm -hmm. not all pussies are pink. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, um, you know, it's a symbol, right? It's not an actual vagina. I'm an ally, and one day I'll be <laughs> the most beautiful ally at the ally bar. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to get you guys boycotted, you know, um, because it'll give you audience yeah. that, audience in the that, hundreds. Uh, that's his job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, also, also, if you want, uh, you want to mention anything about the the Portland people? Was it Portland People's Coalition or Congress? Uh, communists, Portland People's Coalition. That's a coalition. Yes, uh, April fourteenth. Uh, upcoming is a convention where we are going to be um, ratifying a Bill of Rights uh, and a platform of policies. Uh, this is uh, kind of a very exciting uh, um, project that's been going on since uh, the election of our Fuhrer. Um, uh, back so long ago, um, trying to create like actually grassroots, so meaningful social power in Portland. There's a lot of great organizing that goes on here, and so folks have been trying to pull together something more broad that can actually intervene in electoral politics while not falling into the trap of electoralism. Um, and so that's going to happen April 14th at cool. SEIU 503, I think. Um, the bigger one or the smaller one? The one on Foster? Yeah. 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 The, 503, the, yeah. yeah. Foster in like 62nd. Yeah. 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 
Um, but essentially, it's going to pass like a, this kind of like very brief bill of rights, like right to housing, right to education, and and from that derive policy positions. This is uh, we're using um, the group is using the Richmond Progressive Alliance uh, as the model cool. in Richmond, California, which went from like seven people in a room in 2004, where they now have a majority on the city council yeah. as well as the mayorship. One of the things they passed back. Uh, over a decade ago was uh, rent control, and it, they finally won it after a decade. So it's it shows, and there are other examples like uh, you know Jackson, Mississippi, Jackson, yeah. Mississippi Barcelona, and Camus. Yeah. Um, there's also mm-hmm. other various progressive alliances that have sprung up uh, in the wake of, of Richmond. So it's a way to try and like ha- create meaningful change at at the local level. Sweet. Um. Trying to think of uh, anything you've been uh, watching, reading, or listening to. You wanted to, you would recommend folks check out. Uh, who, who have you been reading that really kind of like just blew your mind? Well, I've been reading like food book after food book. <laughs> oh, so, so. Um, I'm I'm not. Uh, I think Jane McAlevey stuff uh, is really good. Yep, uh, she's always fun. Her interviews are always great. Yeah, yeah. Um, really excellent thinker in terms of uh, organizing. Um, People who I regularly read, they're also great. Uh, uh, they're real mensches. Uh, Leo Panich and Sam Gindin. Um, if you really want to understand anything about labor, just Google up Sam Gindin's uh, stuff. Like he has a, a great piece from a couple of years ago. This is what what I was talking about earlier with Janice's Supreme Court decision that's going to wreck public sector unions. This has been coming down the the pike for like five years, and, yeah. and now you just finally see activists like, oh, Janice is coming down it's just like there was another one before there's friedrichs and and then scalia died that but people have known about that this the right has been trying uh, on this war path how do you how do you spell sam's last name uh gindin g-i-n-d-i-n g-i-n okay and they have the two of them their magnum opus uh is um uh, what the hell is it? They, they wrote this book a couple of years ago. Uh, um, something like I think the political economy of American empire. Okay, is, yeah, we'll listen to the show notes. Um, it is probably one of the best books you will ever read about the development of uh, global capitalism in the twentieth century. Um, it is a bit dense if you're not familiar with the language of political economy, um, but they, it's a magisterial work um, in terms of explanatory depth and power. Um, but Gindin's stuff in particular, he was he's someone who walks the walk. He was the chief strategist for the Canadian United Auto Workers Union for like 20 years. So Sweet. he knows labor inside and out. He writes really smart, thoughtful uh, analyses of uh, uh, strategy. And he had a critique about how, like, you know, um, right to work can actually just exacerbate uh, labor's worst, organized labor's worst tendencies. It's It's not going to be, you know, uh, crisis does not uh, create opportunity, you know. Gotcha. Uh, how can folks get a hold of you if you want them to? Uh, on the web or? On, 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 on the interwebs. I have, I have a um, website, but I haven't really updated it in a while. I um, My yeah. fa- my oh. Facebook posts are public. So, gotcha. So uh, find you on Facebook. Find me on the Facebook or Twitter. All right. You guys want to go anything or? I got something. 
Uh, speaking of political economy, I just read a book called The Passions and the Interests by Albert Hirschman. Uh, it's it's really early sort of arguments in defense of capitalism. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's only about 130 pages, and it uh, it kind of shows you how there were people trying to work out different problems as capitalism was starting, and people like Montesquieu, probably the most famous name, uh, found rational well, not rationalizations but but ideological uh, uh, um, explanations is the only word I can think of, but that's not right underpinnings let's say that helped sort of push capitalism give it a nice kick start uh and then based on the Malheur stuff i wanted a, a book popped into my head that i read a hundred years ago called blood in the face by james ridgeway it's about uh it's about far-right movements in the united states james ridgeway is awesome one of the best uh, uh investigative reporters of his era i love the shit out of that book and there's a pretty good though bad quality documentary you can watch for free on YouTube, also called Blood in the Face. But read that Hirschman book first. It was pretty goddamn good. Cool. Jacob? Anything? No. Gotcha. <laughs> um, I, real quick, I've been reading uh, from Haymarket called uh, a book put, put out about 12 years ago by um, Ahmed Shawki, uh, S-H-A-W-K-I, called Black Liberation and Socialism. Which is just this excellent, uh, just hist historical overview from God. I think getting back even in like you know like pre-slavery era in through you know, abolition and just the different historical eras. And man, there's a lot of there. Uh, it's it's fascinating to go back through, especially at the mid 19th century. You know, just to read about uh, like radical writing then. And like, wait a minute, this you know, um, a lot of the uh, um, to say it, it rhymes with today. You know, the, the words echo down. Mm. Um, and other than that, I want to thank my guests for being here tonight. Thanks for chewing the fat with us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having guested me. I don't know. Can I turn that into a verb? Sure you can. You know. Verbing weirds language. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, chewing, chewing the fat, but I, you know, I'm not getting any bread out of this. I've been saying we should unionize, but <laughs> and can we go on strike? I'm yeah. going to go on strike right now. Wildcat. Sure. Uh, thank you for this. Thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen, um, to our extent, our, our yet another one of our extended uh, conversations. Um, yeah, I'll put the contact info afterwards. Thank you. Good night. And uh, uh, any last words other than other than uh, Jacob's joke? No, okay. Trump forever. I thought you weren't an accelerationist. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a prediction. Ah. Can you hear yourself okay? I can hear myself great. Can everybody hear themselves? Mike, check one, two. Mike, check one, two. Ooh, you got one of those fancy little uh, pop blocker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, got it like for five dollars used from uh, Old Town Music just on the way. But um, that's Old Town. Yeah, was it Old Town or is it, or is it? Yeah, I think it's Old Town Guitars. Yeah, it's Old Town Music. Yeah, the one that the one that changed. I just wanted to reemphasize like it was an advertisement. Gotcha. I buy several things at Old Town Music.
most recently. Yeah, most of what the yeah. fuck did I buy most recently? Should we have kind of our smooth radio voices on? Um, this is just my voice, my man. <laughs> Your voice is plenty smooth. Frankly, I'm tired of all of these goddamn liberals ruining our. No. Yeah, I need, I need, a, I need a soundboard of, uh, of like pre-recorded effects. Um, no, Jacob will take care of it. Plug me in. I Can I just go all Paul, Paul Harvey and every ten minutes say, <laughs> and now you know the rest of yeah. the story. And but, that little yeah. boy that nobody liked was Roy Cohn. <laughs> <laughs> You, uh, yeah, only if you do the only if you do the uh, the high low chirp of uh, greatly uh, greatly differing um, uh, cadence and, and accents. <laughs> Let me get this around. Mm-hmm. So can actually... mm-hmm. All right. I like it. So yeah, we can talk about the Portland People's Coalition. Um, just that'll take about ninety seconds. Okay, I figured we can at least mention it. Yeah. First question: good. What is it? <laughs> I. It is a front group for the Judean People's Front. I thought they that were sounds being, exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting over there, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, is that from Life of Brian? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Which I, I really, really think every anyone who's in a left organization should have to watch that uh, at, at least once a year. I haven't seen it probably since middle school. Yeah. There are yeah. There's some good stuff, and it's kind of a thing when, you, especially when you watch. Uh, when you watch watch it and Holy Grail again, and realize that m- at least probably at least two of them were really ex- maybe it's just because of when they were going through school were really exposed, or maybe just that's how Britain was in in like the late in the mid sixties and the seventies were really exposed to a lot of like leftist sectarian oh, stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah, it's clear. They're all too familiar with the the language of we're uh, a collectivist commune. <laughs> yeah, Trotsky is sex. Yeah. Anarcho syndicalists, which is yeah, that's and that's how like a thought you know, a, a couple generations of uh, you know of nerdy American kids learned what the, you know first heard the word anarcho syndicalist.